Let's get it. Monday, July 27th, 2020. Born to Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. That sore tooth that I mentioned in last week's episode turned into a root canal. So fun times. Received a rating or two last week. No new reviews, won't want. But it's nice to see all the nice stories and comments on episode 203's blog on blogs.va.gov. A lot of veterans, after listening or reading about Eric's story, also shared how getting outdoors, especially during what we're going through right now with this pandemic, uh, is helping them, which is nice to see and read. So thank you for those comments on the blog. Got three news releases for you. Uh, First one says, for immediate release, VA expands funding for emergency response for veterans experiencing or at risk of homelessness during COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced it is allocating an additional $400 million, an additional $400 million of its corona relief funding to enhance the department's emergency relief response for veterans experiencing or at risk of homelessness during the coronavirus pandemic. This is big because if you remember, we talked about the first press release and even had the last benefits breakdown episode, uh, episode 201, uh, about this subject. And we talked about the original $300 million and where it went. So this is an addition of $400 million. Uh, it's great. Uh, the newly allocated funds will be used for the supportive services or for veteran families, otherwise known as SSVF. Uh, SSVF offers several ways to secure housing for veterans experiencing or at risk of homelessness. In total, $602 million of the coronavirus relief funding from the CARES Act has now been allocated for this program, which will also help the Housing and Urban Development VA Supportive Housing Program, uh, which places veterans in safe housing to isolate them from the virus. Other coronavirus relief funding devoted to providing emergency shelter and supportive services for veterans includes $88 million for the Grant and Per Diem Program, and $10 million for the Healthcare for Homeless Veterans Program. Uh, again, in the last uh, benefits breakdown, we broke down all of those programs. Uh, VA is hosting a national webinar on July 17th to support budgeting and planning for grantees of the SSVF funding. Go to va.gov to learn more about the department's coronavirus response. It's up at the top. And go to va.gov forward slash homeless to learn more about the VA's programs this funding supports. And like I said, uh, you can also check out Born the Battle, episode 201. Okay, second one says, for immediate release, VA healthcare first to have centers for Medicare and Medicaid services codes for chaplain care. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced it is approved to establish three new healthcare common procedure coding system codes, mouthful, government for chaplain spiritual care. The new Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services healthcare settings provide 15-minute sessions for each chaplain, pastoral, and spiritual assessment services, individual counseling, and group therapy. This is the first time an organization has been granted these independent healthcare codes created for use by their clinical chaplains in a standalone setting. 
The new codes further enable a comprehensive biopsychosocial spiritual approach. They facilitate outlining a patient's intrinsic and, ex- and extrinsic spirituality, spiritual preference, practices, and health, coping mechanisms, and well-being. This ultimately helps with goal development of spiritual care unique to a patient's needs and family-slash-caregiver support. In addition to veterans, VA chaplains also provide consultation, counseling, and support to family members, caregivers, and VA staff. The three new codes will go into effect October 1st. Some good news. And finally, for immediate release, study shows VA surgical care better than or equal to non-VA hospitals. In a recent study, it was shown that VA hospitals outperform or match neighboring non-VA hospitals in surgical quality and overall patient safety satisfaction. The finding comes from a study conducted by VA and university researchers that was published on June 26th in the Journal of Surgical Research. The study identified VA medical centers with at least one non-VA hospital within 25 miles in three U.S. regions, the West, Southwest, New England, and Deep South. With a sample of 34 VA facilities and 319 neighboring non-VA hospitals, the researchers use benchmarks created by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. They also use scores from the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems. The results showed VA facilities perform better or as good as non-VA hospitals in overall patient safety indicators, otherwise known as PSIs, which measure potential hospital complications and adverse events following surgeries and other procedures. VA hospitals perform much better in surgery-specific PSIs. The researchers also found VA and non-VA hospitals were about equal in patient satisfaction with overall hospital experience. The data was collected from Hospital Compare, a publicly available database that helps consumers decide where to seek healthcare. The Centers for Medical and Medicaid Services runs the database. You know, I normally don't talk about VA awards or self-pats on the back for the department doing a good job or just taking care of business. But to me, this one is more than just a shiny statue. It's it's a healthcare comparison with benchmark indicators. Um, I know from other outlets, you get the bad news. And here's some of the good. And it's and I think it's important to get both. All right. So here's some more good news. Do you know that if you're an Alaskan Native American Vietnam veteran or a family member of one, you may be eligible to be given 2.5 to 160 acres of land out in Alaska? No, maybe. For this week's benefits breakdown, we're going to go outside the department a little bit. We're going to break down the Alaska Native Veterans Program of 2019, and we're going to do it with delegations from both the VA and the Department of Interior's Bureau of Land Management. And hopefully if you're listening, if this doesn't pertain to you specifically, hopefully you can help us find veterans or a surviving family member who may be eligible. So enjoy. Man, we got a full panel here today. Um, you know, and, and the first thing I want to do is introduce everyone here. Um, and we almost got a dual delegation, right? From both VA and from the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, from the VA, we have Peter and Peter, is it Vicare? Vicare. Vicare. Very good. Uh, 
Peter Vacare is a tribal relations specialist for VA's Office of Tribal Government Relations, and you covered down on 74 tribes in 14 states, correct? That's correct. Yeah, from Montana to Maine. That is a wide net, Peter. Uh, I try to be a good fisherman. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> uh, Peter is a Marine veteran, raw. Uh, what years did you serve? 94, 98. 94 to 98. And you are a member of the First Nation of, of a First Nation tribe in Quebec. Uh, do you mind telling our, our listeners which nation? I don't want to butcher it. Sure. Mi'kmaq. Let's do which Mi'kmaq. It's in the, the Gaspé Peninsula up in Quebec. Very good. Very good. And uh, Peter was a 2010 fellow at Michigan State University's, one of your alma maters, uh, Indigenous Law and Policy Center. Fun fact, you have law degrees in both the U.S. and Canada and a master's from American Military University. Uh, what's your master's in? In military studies. Military uh, studies. Military history, yeah. Very well. Well, Peter, welcome to Born the Battle. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, on to the Bureau of Land Management Delegation. We have Eric. Eric, uh, last name, is it Tausch? Bingo. You got it. Yes. <laughs> Who is the Deputy Communication Director for Bureau of Land Management, Alaska. Uh, son of a decorated Army Vietnam pilot. Eric, what's your father's name? Uh, Walt Tausch. Walt Tausch. And you are a retired Marine yourself, bro. With, ex with, ex with experience in combat and disaster relief operations. Got to ask where and when. Uh, <laughs> most of it was uh, between uh, 04 and uh, 07. Uh, Iraq uh, and uh, some tsunami relief, Indonesian earthquake relief, that kind of thing. Very and, good. Very and good. don't leave out Hurricane Sandy, of course, in New York City. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, bachelor's in psychology and a master's in social work. Eric, welcome to Born the Battle. Thanks, Tanner. Yep. Candy. Candy Grimes has worked for the Bureau of Land Management as a land law examiner, adjudicating native allotments applications since 2005. Uh, during this time, she has worked on all parts of the Native American allotment program and is currently the Aguilar Hearing Officer and Acting Chief of Adjudication Services Selection. Candy, welcome to Born the Battle. Thank you. Uh, quick question. Are, are there Native allotment programs beyond the one that we're talking about today? Yes, there's the original 1906 Allotment Act, um, and then there was the 1998 Vietnam-era uh, Allotment Act, and... Um, those still have ap open applications on those. Outstanding. Well, Candy, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, Paul, is it Krabacher? Close, Kraybacher. Kraybacher, who is the Bureau of Land Management Alaska's project manager for the Alaska Native American Allotment Program of 2019. Uh, Paul's Bureau of Land Management experience goes way Goes, I don't, I don't want to say way back, excuse me, goes back to performing vegetation and wildlife inventories in the late 1970s. Uh, subsequent bureau positions include Alaska's state botanist. That's a cool position. Never heard of something like that. And the National Bureau of Land Management Seed Coordinator. For the, for the, you were the National Seed Coordinator. I got to say, those sound like really unique positions, Paul. They are or were <laughs> in my case. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite part about those? Uh, diversity of, of uh, people interacting, farmers to salesmen, business, etc. Very cool. Very good. Uh, Paul is currently the project manager of the Bureau of Land Management, Alaska's Deputy State Director of Lands. Is it cadastral? Correct, as in survey. Okay. 
Gotcha. Very good. And pipeline monitoring. And you're the project manager for the Alaska Native Veteran American Allotment Program of 2019. Paul, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. And last but certainly not least, um, and and is, is Ralph? Is it Eluska? Yeah, close enough. Close enough. <laughs> Ralph, I'm going to need some help with pronunciation of some of uh, of some of your uh, your intro here because I do not want to butcher it. Uh, so if, if I pause, please please fill in the blank. All right. Um, Ralph is the Bureau of Land Management Alaska Land Transfer Resolution Specialist and acting Native Liaison. Since 2003, Ralph has worked for the Bureau of Land Management Alaska as a Land Transfer Resolution Specialist. Uh, he's also served on the Alaska Federation of Natives as chairman and board member. Uh, the Federation is a statewide Native American political and social organization for the state of Alaska. He also served as the president of the it's, it's a Native Akiak, yep. okay. uh, which is a, an Alaska Native Village Corporation. And you've also served as a board member for Kodiak. Kodiak Incorporated, which is the regional corporation for the villages of Kodiak Island. Ralph graduated from Mount Edgecombe High School, a native boarding school in Sitka, Alaska. He attended and graduated from Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, and was born and raised in, uh, is it Akiak? Correct. A small village of 90, is it a, a, a loot? Alutic. Alutic indigenous yeah. peoples still going strong. Personal note, he enjoys working for the Bureau of Land Management Alaska because he is directly involved with conveying lands to Alaska indigenous people acquired under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. Uh, says he hopes to be here when the first Native Vietnam veteran allotment is conveyed. Ralph, I have no doubt that you will. And I can tell by your bio, bio that the personal interest that you have in this project, um, I can definitely tell. I can definitely tell that that that's there. So, thank you for being on the show. My honor. Thank you, um, uh, gentlemen and Candy, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I, this is the easily the, the, the largest panel I've had on Born the Battle, but I'm happy to have it on such an important subject. And the, to to me, this hits close to home because I, I'm I'm a child of the Pacific Northwest myself. Uh, my great grandmother was from the Flathead Reservation, and I grew up 20 minutes outside of the Quinault Indian Nation. So, to be in a position where I can potentially broadcast information out to help give land back to Native American veterans, and for the opportunity for them to be self-sufficient, um, I thank all of you guys uh, for an opportunity to do that. Thank you. So, first, uh, you know, I, 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 whoever wants to answer this, uh, how did this allotment come to be, um, Ralph? Your bio. You mentioned the Alaska Natives Claim Act of 1971. How does it relate to the Bureau's Native American Allotment Program of 2019? Um, if you don't mind, Paul, I'll try to field that. But there's uh, Candy and others with the experience of this allotment dating back to two, uh, 1906. Uh, and this has uh, direct growth out of the uh, 1906 allotment Act uh, in 1971, when the Claims Act uh, was introduced, it was passed, but previous to that, introduced part of the uh, Claims Settlement Act said that you all are entitled to a 1906 allotment. And with the passage of ANSCA, that opportunity will cease to exist. And so we had a lot of applicants, myself included, 
to apply through that uh, uh, through that period before it was where it was uh, discontinued, and uh, then, but as Candy will tell you, the uh, um, the veterans had an opportunity, and this is their second opportunity uh, to file for an allotment, and. We thank you for allowing us to use your medium to go out and find the needle in the haystack so that these Vietnam veterans will have an opportunity to apply, uh, which is their right. And through your podcast, we hope if we find at least one, we will all be worth this opportunity. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Ralph. Can, can you kind of give me a, a, a brief history on what allotment programs are, were, how they came to be, and, and what this, how they may have differed between 1906, 71, and 2019? Okay. The Native Allotment uh, 1906 Act started when um, to allow Alaska Natives to select 160, up to 160 acres of land that they used and occupied. Um, They had to show five years of use and occupancy, potentially exclusive of others. And that went up until um, the passage of ANCSA, which stopped that application. But we're, you know. What what is that? What is that acronym? It's the uh, Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. Okay. Okay. We were, uh, of course, we still adjudicated the applications we received before INCSA. Um, and then in 1998, when the first VET Act was passed, we were, it was also, they had to use the land. It was land that they would have selected if they hadn't been in the military and here to apply, you know, before the 1971 um, cutoff date. Um, okay. And unfortunately, a lot of them did not qualify because the rules on that one were they had to um, be live in the state, a resident of the state, or had to have been um, resident of the state when they died. Um, this one is completely different. Uh, they can select lands that's available, but they didn't have to actually use it because um, a lot of the lands that they had um originally used is gone. It's already been claimed by either the state or an ANCSA corporation or um, withdrawn for other reasons. So, you know, they won't be able to have that. Um, So this one opens up more land to them. um, And there's no restriction. They don't have to live in Alaska. Uh, They don't have, they didn't have to be a Alaska resident if they, at the time of their death. So it actually opens that up broader and so much better. So, so it, it's not it's not as limiting as previous uh, land allotments. No, no, it's not. Very good, very good. Um, so I guess that leads into my next question: How are you eligible for for this land allotment? Uh, it's, it's not only veterans, right? It, it, it's it's better if the veteran has passed away, the heirs to a veteran are eligible too, right? Yeah, this is Paul. That's that's absolutely correct. Um, and that's a, another benefit to this this allotment program. The basic uh, note, the basic eligibility 
requirements or you had to have served um, between August 5th, 1964 and the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, uh, December 31st, 71. And so how the process, the eligibility is working is DOD and VA uh, were tasked by the legislation to give the Bureau of Indian Affairs a list of veterans who served between that period of time. And then B BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, would determine whether the individual is Alaska Native uh, per law. Mm -hmm. And that got sent to, that list gets sent to the Bureau of Land Management to determine if the a native veteran had previously received an allotment pursuant to those previous acts that were just described. And then we notify those eligible individuals. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so what, for all these land allotments, why is the department of interior doing this in the first place? Paul, can I take a stab? Absolutely. Rob. Yeah. Uh, you, you ask a very, very, uh, a question that dates all the way back to the treaties between the uh, American Indians and in this case, uh, uh, agreements with the Alaska Native uh, people. Yes, sir. And uh, you ask, well, why, why is the Bureau of Land Management or Department of Interior providing this opportunity for the vets? It provided the opportunity for uh, American Indians receiving 160 acres uh, to be out, to be allowed the opportunity to be a farmer. Yeah. And so there's another story there. And, but that allotment uh, continued and continued. When it got to Alaska, it kind of got stalled out because communications and other reasons. But the bottom line is that uh, you American Indian can no longer be roaming the country Here's 160 acres, settle down. Mm. I don't know if that puts it too directly, Paul, but in a nutshell, that's what it was about. Ralph, I always love your perspective. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Abs absolutely. Um, and then so what's with this uh, specificity of the Vietnam veteran? How did this come about as an opportunity for the Vietnam veteran? This, this new law, the section of the Dingle Act that was passed last year, it basically is, is the purpose is to correct injustices. Yes. The congressional delegation and the Native community, of course, felt that the previous two acts uh, created, such as what Candy had mentioned about the uh, requirement in the previous two acts, the uh, personal use and occupancy requirement. And then as well as is the short window of time that uh, the 98 Vietnam Veteran Act um, was was directed at. It was a lot shorter window uh, to qualify. What was the window? Uh, it was like 69 through through the passage of ANCSA. So instead of 60, okay. 69. So it opens that window up <clears throat> as well as having the opportunity for a longer period of time for application. Candy, do you want to add to anything to that? This time, we're actually having a um, a list of possible applicants beforehand instead of just going out with the law and the regs and saying, here's the application. Um, there's a lot more communication with um, providers and stuff around um, 
here in Alaska and also hopefully in the lower 48 to get the word out. And also, I want to clarify something. This is not just Vietnam vets. This is all vets who served within that time, Alaska Native vets who served in that time. They may not have been in Vietnam. They may have been over in Germany or wherever, you know. Yeah, Vietnam era. So Vietnam era, but you don't have to specifically serve in Vietnam. Uh, but but as long as you serve in that era, you are entitled to this land. And if I could, uh, and if I could echo on what Ralph said too, is and and uh, extend on what Eric had mentioned about forty percent or so of these potential eligible individuals being outside of Alaska. It's imperative for venues such as this and this podcast. And thanks again to you know help extend that information out uh, because we would like those uh, eligible individuals to come forward now. So when the actual rules get implemented uh, coming up in September, October, that they'll already be qualified. So we will not have to require their paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. Yeah. I will, I will, we're going to touch on the timeline in a, in a, in a second here. Uh, But real quick, before we get to that, um, I noticed on the program's uh, blm.gov website, and we'll put the site up on the blog for this episode on blogs.va.gov. It says that veterans or their heirs can select 2.5 to 160 acres of federal land in Alaska. Now, how do you decide who gets two and a half or 160 acres? It seems like there's kind of a big disparity there. Is it, is it, hey, take your pick. This is how we've allotted this land based on the current value of the area. Or how is that getting chosen between two and a half to 160? It is it's totally their decision. Oh, wow. Minimum two and a half acres up to 160 acres, one parcel. Wow. So it's, it's, someone goes to apply, you're, you're approved. If you just say, Hey, I only want 10, you can take 10 or if you can, you can take a whole 160 if you want. That's correct. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, now you guys kind of touched on, uh, how the program is going to be administered. What is the bureau's role? And then, um, I guess I'll have, uh, Peter touch on real quick. What's the VA's role in this? And then you guys did talk about the Bureau of Indian Affairs portion of this. Uh, Peter, you want to start? Sure. Um, so the VA's part of it, 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 it's in the law. It specifies that VA uh, will help veterans with their applications. So, um, and they also have to provide outreach. Like this podcast? Exactly like this podcast. And that's working alongside with, with BLM. Um, so really, it's, it's those two things, outreach and uh, uh, helping vets with their applications. Very good. And uh, BLM, and I, I know you guys kind of touched on it. Uh, what is your role in this with the Bureau of Indian Affairs? We are at the very tail end of actually issuing the certificate of allotment to the native vet. And Candy, you can, that's, that is sort of your life. Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, you know, we'll be accepting the applications once they're, um, the rules are finalized and the applications are ready. Um, we'll adjudicate the um, application, make sure that it's, you know, proper person and everything, you know, have the land surveyed and then issue a certificate of allotment. Um, and once that is issued, uh, it will go to the Bureau of Indian Affairs 
the individual. I call my latiques. That's what we uh, um, is deceased. The uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs will go by um, that person's probate to distribute the land to the heirs, whoever um, the heirs are. Um, and that's another thing I want to clarify is um, if it is a deceased individual, um, so their heirs will uh, get together, hopefully, and select someone to be the um, personal rep of the estate to apply for the land on the behalf of the deceased vet. Um, I want to clarify that not every heir of this person um, gets to select 160, just one person um, on behalf of the uh, um, individual who is deceased, and they will be distributed to the probated heirs. Interesting. Okay, so how do you choose which heir? Is it does it go by the oldest? Oh, uh, it's we don't choose that. That's up to the family. Got you. Tracking. Okay, very good. Very yeah. good. Um, also on your BLM. Oh, go ahead. Tanner, this is Eric. Um, and you, you had noted that, that we don't have anyone from the Bureau of Indian Affairs on here. So I, I just want to kind of yeah. speak up for them and for Department of Defense. You know, the, um, we currently, um, well, I'll start to be the beginning, um, you know, between late 2019 and, and uh, January of this year, um, both the VA and uh, Department of Defense um, provided the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs with about 10 million uh, names of, of folks who could potentially be available. And, and they did such an amazing, amazing job of, uh, you know, validating uh, Alaska Native status. And, uh, you know, they still continue to do so, um, having now whittled down about a thousand, uh, a thousand folks who are eligible, eligible to apply. And, uh, you know, the BLM has been, uh, been able to start mailing out those uh, notifications uh, and, uh, the VA and uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs continue uh, trying to determine eligibility for another 1,200. So they've, they've just done an amazing, amazing job. And I just want to give my kudos on your show here, um, you know, for doing so. Absolutely. Absolutely. 10 million to 1,200. That's, 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 that's amazing. Uh, 10 million to uh, about 2,200. We've, we've got a yeah. thousand that have already been validated and, and they're still working on a discharge status validation and, and that kind of thing for another, you know, 1,200. So. We're mailing a thousand out, and uh, looking forward to another twelve hundred. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Eric. That's a real important point here. That you know, how many are there? Well, it's still in in process. Um, VA graciously took data back from BIA to determine discharge status. It's other than dishonorable discharge status, that was not part of the original um, data set that was transferred to BIA. So it's ongoing, I guess. It will be ongoing. Very good. Also on your blm.gov website, I saw a map of the available lands map. It's like an interactive map. It's really cool once I clicked on it. Um, and I noticed that there is available land east of Fairbanks between the Alaska and Taylor highways. And then in the southeast between the Icy Bay and the Bering Glacier, um, and finally, I saw available on, on land way out in the southwest coast near Good News Bay. And I think there was another spot near a lake just south of the Alaska Highway uh, on the eastern side. Uh, and we're talking about tens of thousands of acres, huge swaths of land. Um, how are these places chosen? The uh, legislation basically defines what is available. 
Um, and what is available in their definition is basically vacant, unappropriated, and unreserved. So what that means is public domain lands that have never left federal ownership yeah. and are not currently reserved or withdrawn. Now, most of the Alaskan uh, entities have said that it is very restricted. And this gets into an encumbrance or a reservation that was uh, enacted when the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was passed. And it's a certain section of that act that withdrew all unreserved public lands. And the way to get that removed is through a revocation process through our resource management planning process. And that's why there's these isolated parcels. Once these public land orders these ANCSA 17D1 public landowners get revoked. Uh, and that's a secretarial approval. BLM recommends, secretary approves. That's going to open up way more land. So if you go to that map, you see that caveat in the legend that says after uh, withdrawal revocation. So you, for the person from the lower 48, that's a huge swath. But actually up here, that's an issue in that it's restricted in certain areas in addition to certain areas not having any ability to have any selections whatsoever, such as in your homeland, such as in your area that you're from. Yeah. So that is an issue for, for uh, a lot of Native entities. Ralph, did you, did you have anything to add to that? Um, I don't – I think I can just uh, probably represent that the view of the uh, – people that will be applying, you're talking about the lands, right? Yeah, I just, I noticed uh, yeah, the where land. the land was in Alaska. And it looks like, you know, if you look from a 10,000 foot view, it looks very small, but I mean, it's, yeah. we're talking tens of thousands of acres. Yeah, yeah. the issue that, that that represents is that people like in Southeast and there's there's a lot of teas all over the state. And so <clears throat> it's not lands that, uh, that would contribute to their subsistence lifestyle because they're not near their homes. It's, a, you know, you know, there's a lot of land to choose from, but to come right down to it, if you're down in, say, uh, Cloac and you're, a, you're a, <clears throat> eligible, there are no lands there for you to choose from to uh, make an application for allotment. And then so you just gotta choose from what's available. And those are the sideboards that we are allowed, we have to live by. We can't, yeah. uh, we can't go where it's not available. Got you. But nobody is a, you know, you could sell it once you get the allotment and then Either way, it's it's worth taking, I, I would assume, based on, you know, you could just sell it and then buy somewhere that's near your homeland, correct? Yes. That, that's a, that's how they get their land and try to get something close to home. Very good. Very good. Um, yeah, that's, that, that map that you guys have on BLM is a really good map. Um, yeah, I noticed that you guys can put a lot of overlays on the map. Uh, from what I'm assuming that the that the bureau has collected, like highways and contaminated sites, 
So you can look and see exactly where you'd like to claim. It's it's a pretty incredible map that you guys put together. And, and actually, Tanner, that has an added tool that you can plot your selection on the map and save it as a PDF and print that and send it with your application. That was the intent. Um, the beauties of GIS, I might add. That's that's incredible. That's incredible. Um, I'll make sure to at least hyperlink it in the blog on blogs.va.gov. Um, let's talk about timeline. Uh, when do you apply? Uh, where are we now in that process and how do we get there? Hey, Tanner, this is Eric. I can I can jump in on that. Um, and if I can also just uh, go back a little bit uh, on Ralph's comment that um, that folks could, uh, or your question, that folks can uh, definitely sell the land once uh, once it's awarded to them, um, and you know some of those concerns that uh, that he conveyed um, about land being <clears throat> not in the same area where an applicant may be living. Um, you know, Paul and his team, a uh, you know, multidisciplinary team from VA and then BIA, have been meeting with stakeholders. Uh, uh, throughout the past year to develop some rules for that for this program and uh, we continue to do so um, meeting with veterans and you know that that is definitely a concern that they've voiced um, and a couple of the big questions that come with that are you know can we sell the land and the answer is yes the other big question we get um, is uh, you know can we take cash in lieu of the land and just want to make help folks get that that question answered right off the bat and say unfortunately those uh those sideboards that ralph mentioned uh you know prohibit that that's that's not something that's provided for uh in the yeah. law um but back to those uh the stakeholder meetings have um been held to develop proposed rules for this program and those proposed rules will govern every facet of the program to include the application process um we're super excited right now because the the past uh, month has been you know just phenomenal. We've um, started, uh, as I mentioned before, we've started mailing out uh, notices uh, to fo to about a thousand folks that are uh, eligible to apply for the program. Um, we've also got the proposed version of those rules um, published and out on the streets for folks to review and make public comments on. And earlier this month on the uh, 15th and 16th, we held a series of virtual meetings uh, to reach out to folks nationwide um, and get their and answer their questions, give them a brief on the program. Um, you know, the, doing the best that we can do. We typically would go out to uh, villages and meet with folks, but you know, under the current conditions, um, yeah. You know, very concerned with protecting uh, our communities and our own employees. So, um, we're we're hoping that those uh, those virtual meetings were able to reach out and and touch some folks. And and uh, we're really looking forward to their comments. The comment period uh, closes August 10th, so there's still a couple, a few more weeks uh, once this program broadcasts that folks can go out onto our website and <clears throat> get instructions on how to review the uh, proposed rules and make any comments on those. On the on the we're talking about the federal register, correct? Correct, correct. And once okay. we uh, and once we incorporate uh, those comments, uh, we're we're looking at uh, the final rules being published uh, later this year, and that's when the actual application uh, period will start. 
Gotcha. When do you figure that that will be, Eric? When will where when can veterans start the application process? You know, this it's thirty days after those final rules are published in the Federal Register, and um, applications uh, will be mailed out um, prior to that uh, prior to uh, that deadline. Um, and then, if anyone submits applications early, of course, they're just all going to be considered as having been received on the first day that. Uh, that the rules are active. Did I very uh, good? Did I miss anything important there, Paul? No, actually, I just was going to answer your question, Tanner. That um, legislation direct us directed us to implement the program within eighteen months of passage. Of course, the the act passed in March of two thousand nineteen, which puts it in September. We fully intend on getting the final rules published in September meaning that 30 days after. So we're on a fast track now with these uh, proposed rules being out and accepting comments and turning those comments, integrating them or making decisions on them and getting them into the final rules by September. Very good. Very good. Uh, you've already, you, you talked about you, you've sent out letters to folks that, that might already be eligible or are eligible. Have you gotten any uh, feedback from, from them or have anybody have anybody has anybody been surprised, uh, happy, elated? Um, I can answer that one because uh, we just started actually mailing those out this week, so we haven't had any replies back yet. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Well, I hope you do. I really hope you do. Yeah. So, it, so if you do get a notification, or if you think that you're eligible, uh, you know, or you're an heir of somebody that was eligible, you know, if you're eligible through as an heir. What can you do to ensure that you're ready to go when this opens up for applications? And how long is the application window? Application window is five years after the rules are implemented. Okay. They have within five years. And so there's going to be a lot of land change within that five years. Very good. Very good. So what can what can uh, people that are eligible, people that think that they're eligible, what can they do now to be re- make sure that they're ready so that they don't miss that five-year window? Well, they can go to our website and they have frequently asked questions and answers there, but um, contact the Bureau of uh, Land Management, which this letter actually has contact info in there, and also the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Peter, you got anything to add add to that? What what can veterans do before they come to the VA to to make sure that they're ready to go? Well, the first thing they should do um, is get a hold of their DD-214 if they don't already have that, have that readily available, update their contact information, their email, any, any way to contact them, phone, just to make sure that they're you know, up to date on that stuff. Okay. Gotcha. Hey, likewise, uh, Tanner is to make sure that the BIA and our BIA service provider is is contacted with updated information as well. Okay. And, and also, a, and a real important point here are the heirs or loved ones from the deceased, uh, uh, eligible individuals who've de- deceased, is to make sure that you get the personal representative process going because through the Alaska court system is how it was directed with the legislation. It has to be approved through the Alaska state court system. And that is a process. So at, to get on that sooner than later is absolutely imperative. Run run that run that through. What what does that entail? What is that? Uh, it's basically a probate process. As early as we alluded to earlier, it's not each heir gets is entitled to uh, land a land allotment. It's a personal representative that represents 
the heirs and or loved ones for that deceased uh, native vet. And okay, so the family needs to figure that out. Correct, and actually get the right uh, documentation and paperwork through the Alaska state court system. Very good, very good. And I, I'd like to add here that, um, you know, even if you, you know, to your audience, uh, and we find somebody out there that uh, wondering that if they're an heir or that they knew somebody that was in the service, then they should answer that question by go, going online, getting online, check the BLM website, BIA website, get the address and send your information in or tell them uh, they think they might be an heir. And the only way to find that out is to send the information to BLM, BIA and start the contact process. We're just afraid that we're going to miss somebody and we don't want to yeah. do that. Absolutely, Ralph. That's the, what's the, that's, that's one reason I hope that this, if, if we can find somebody that is not even, uh, that didn't know that, that this was available to them, that's, that's to me, that's the whole value of, of why we're talking about this. Um, exactly. Absolutely, Ralph. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, as we pointed out before, you know, many of the eligible veterans in there lived out, live outside Alaska and about 40% are deceased, uh, according to, you know, the records from BIA and VA. Um, and we're sending the notifications and the fo and following up with applications to the best known addresses we have for veterans or next to kin. But, um, the, you know, the addresses we have are highly suspect <laughs> in terms of being outdated. I think, uh, Ralph had a, a great example. He was telling me yesterday about one of the addresses he found. I don't know if Ralph wants to uh, share that or not. Oh, yeah. That, it was a, a vet that happens to be from my home. And and the address that they used was when he was in the service in 1974 or 72. Oh, and man. Roles were being uh, developed by the BIA to establish the shareholder lists of each of our village and regional corporations. And the, the BIA, no fault of their own, they wouldn't have any reason to be updating their original list unless they were a tribal member that come in to, uh, uh, you know, have some uh, benefit that they wanted to acquire from the BIA. Then they get an updated address. But that's just, yeah, one example. So you you, you found a, a from a, from nineteen wow so from the nineteen seventy four the act passed in seventy one and um, B, the uh, BIA was required within two three years to establish a role yeah. we'll call it Akiak and then send that role to Akiak and to the regional corporation so they had that as a requirement under the claim settlement act. Yeah, but they had they had it hasn't been updated. That that particular yeah. veteran wasn't updated since '74. It's amazing. Yeah, it was. I mean, <laughs> so we had that. You know, to shore that up, we have uh, newsletters that we get from the regional and village corporations. Yeah, you know, if we happen to know them, and I received a, a, a shareholder corporate, the Bering Strait Corporation sent a newsletter out and they had like five columns of, um, of uh, a lot, uh, not a lot of shareholders. They didn't have updated addresses and 
So even the corporations, like my own yeah. corporation, they have they ask for help to find shareholders because shareholders are not checking back in with the with the companies. I hope that we're getting out enough the word so that those uh, individuals get back to us with their their interest. Say, I might be an heir or I might be a, a legitimate applicant. And that's what I would like them to get information back to BLM, BIA, their service provider, their tribe, their corporation. Of course, of course. Well, let's hope we can find a couple through the podcast here. Yeah. Um, I, I got a question for those familiar with the Dingle Act, uh, the law that's making this happen. I, I was wondering if there's anything that's kind of like small print that that is not well known about this act that it should be well known, or have we pretty much covered that with some of this stuff? I I think we've we've covered it, and the one thing I think that differs in this is, and we've touched on it, we've touched on it many times is the ability for the heir or loved one. And that's, what's unique about this. And to get that out. Another distinction between this act and, you know, the, and the other one is that it removes the requirement for uh, use and occupancy of the lands. So that's no longer mm -hmm. required for which it was previously. Gotcha. Gotcha. Can well, I just jump you know, in there I, and, and, yep. and say that, um, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> have folks go read through the, uh, the rules, uh, you know, the draft rules. So they really understand the ins and outs. You know, there, there are lots of questions that folks have that can be answered between our, the, uh, frequently asked questions on our website and those actual rules. Um, you know, and as you can imagine, uh, questions abound in, in cases, you know, what happens if two people end up selecting the same land, you know, how, how does that get taken care of? All of that information is in those rules. So, um, you know, I, I would encourage folks uh, to a reach out to anyone and everyone um, who uh, thinks they know an Alaska native or the heir of a Vietnam veteran, uh, make sure they know about this program and direct them to the website and then uh, there are very some of the great things that, that Peter and, and Ralph and Paul have talked about. Instructions are right there on the website. You know, what what can I do right now? Um, like getting your DD-214, uh, looking at the lands available. But above all else, read the rules so that when the time comes to apply, that they have their questions answered and they're ready to go. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, lady and gentlemen, um, you know, I, I wish Stephanie was here. I wish she didn't have her, her technical difficulties because I wanted to thank her for bringing this program to my attention so we could do a breakdown on it. Um, final question, uh, as I think we probably, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, this is for everyone. We can go Peter, Eric, Candy, Paul, and then Ralph. This is your, your time. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add that I may not have asked that you think is important to share? Um, any, any final thoughts? I'd like to uh, throw in one more thing, uh, Tanner, just to give a, a kudos and thanks to uh, George Eisenbach. Uh, he was he was on a temporary assignment to to our Office of Tribal Government Relations, um, and he was uh, quite helpful in getting this going for, for our site here at VA. So thanks to George. Thank you. Um, it's been an honor to be a part of this podcast, and I hope we 
through your efforts, our efforts, we reach uh, some of the uh, uh, potential uh, lattes out in across America and and all the way to Hanoi, if possible. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. I I just, I just want to thank Stephanie and her effort on this for jumping in feet first and and having this ability to, just as Ralph said, I hope we get that that veteran in Bangkok or definitely in the lower 48 is where this really is, hopefully will shine. And thank you again, Tanner. Yeah, I would just like um, thank thank you for having us on here. And I'd like um, those who are listening to spread the word, make sure you're, you know, talk to people and have them contact the BIA or the BLM um, for any questions they may have on this. Please don't hesitate. Please contact us. Because you never know. You might just be an heir. You might be, you might be one of the eligible individuals. And who hasn't spoken? Is it Eric? Any final appeal? <laughs> Thanks, Tanner. Um, I didn't point out on, uh, one great resource on the website uh, is a downloadable PDF flyer that I mean anyone can print, and I encourage them to do so. Print it out, take it to your American Legion. Um, your local veterans organization, tack that up um, and ask, you know, members of uh, any organization and any agency, you know, if you've got veterans there, print off the flyer, post it up on bulletin boards, pass it around. Um, it contains all of the basic actions, a current update, uh, contact information. Um, really reiterating something Candy, uh, Candy started off with, Alaska is huge and no, and no one understands that until they're here. And, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, the cornerstone of what we're doing today was the Native Allotment Act that was passed in 1906. You can imagine with language barriers, uh, the lack of different kinds of media um, to to do some kind of outreach. You know, that grew in the 70s a little bit. And when there was a, a real massive media push and advertising campaign to make folks aware that their opportunity under that uh, 1906 Act may be going away. There were folks in Vietnam who who weren't able to receive that information, and that's one of the the big reasons, um, you know, for the date range that we're looking at here is to is to follow that up and make sure that we reach all of those folks who may have been serving, who weren't able to take advantage of that that media outreach and that advertising. So this is just a great opportunity, and, and we appreciate. Uh, your time in this platform to uh, to be able to come back around and make sure that uh, this opportunity is taken advantage of by uh, you know either those Vietnam veterans uh, or their uh, their family members. So thank you. We served our country like those before us. You know, it was a dangerous era. All of Vietnam was dangerous. The carnage of war left an indelible mark on me. We came back and built lives. As time went on, we faced new challenges and found support to handle them. I went to the VA, talked to my doctor. I started doing groups. I started doing one-on-one counseling. At maketheconnection.net, you can hear our stories and find tools and services available to you. I want to thank my colleague, Stephanie Birdwell, our Director of Tribal Government Relations, for letting me know about this program and coordinating our guests so we could talk about it here on Born the Battle. It's a long URL, so I'll tell you what, 
Put Alaska Native Veterans Program of 2019 in your Google machine, and it's the first URL that pops up. Or find the blog of this episode on blogs.va.gov, and we'll have all the links there as well. Finally, for more information on VA's Office of Tribal Relations, visit va.gov forward slash tribal government. Stephanie also broke down her office and what they do uh, in her interview with Tim on Born the Battle episode 64 in the Born the Battle archives. Go ahead and check it out. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is courtesy of Project Jukebox, which is a digital branch of the University of Alaska Fairbanks' oral history program. Richard Frank was a respected Athabascan elder from Minto, Alaska. He was born in 1927 to Justin and Lucy Frank during a time when a nomadic subsistence lifestyle was paramount for survival. His family moved across the lands of Rampart, Stephen Village, and Minto. He grew up learning the skills and traditions of his ancestors. This early training set the path and philosophy that Richard followed throughout his life. A strong work ethic, a sense of place, service to community, fierce independence, and a competitive spirit. Richard became involved in community projects at a young age. He participated in a local youth club, similar to the Boy Scouts, where he assisted the elders by cutting their wood, hunting for them, hauling their water, and helping the elders any way he could. At age 13, he chose to join the workforce and got a job with the Alaska Railroad, working between Nanana and Cantwell. When Richard turned 18, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps and served in the Pacific Theater during World War II. There he learned to be an airplane mechanic, which he later applied to jobs with Wine, Wien, Wien Airlines and Boeing. He also worked on the river boats on the Tanana, I hope I said that right, and Yukon Rivers that hauled freight to remote communities. Having grown up mushing dogs, Richard applied this skill and interest into training and racing sled dogs. In the 1960s, Richard advocated for Native land rights and was highly involved in the Alaska Native Land Claims Movement. During his lifetime, Richard Frank served as the chief of the Minto Tribal Council, president of the Minto Village Corporation, and served on the board of the Tanana Chiefs Conference. Sadly, Richard Frank passed away in 2012 at the age of 85. Doyen Limited one of the 13 regional Native American corporations created by Congress in 1971 under the Native Claims Settlement Act created the Richard Frank Award in his honor. The award was created to honor Alaska Natives who serve in the military. Army Air Corps veteran Richard Frank. We honor his service. That is it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app, known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, RallyPoint, 
etc., etc. DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I am reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you right here on Monday. Take care.